We want to say thank you for listening. So our sponsors have given some great deals in this episode. Check these out. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. And SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Access PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise-canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Access PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Access system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at access.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. And SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They are here to bring your agency up to date with the most current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is awesome. With a certified flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I am happy to say that I am one of them, they offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 has also partnered with Petzl to assist with personal protective equipment and the highly specific Lazard. SR3 also goes beyond the helicopter world as they provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com or over on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue. After the explosion on the galaxy, that story made headlines that went everywhere. I mean, it was in Anchorage, Alaska, Seattle, Washington, even made it to my hometown in Ashburnham, Massachusetts. I was like, I was blown away. In addition to that, the story made headlines and other articles in magazines such as Coast Guard Magazine, Soundings Magazine, and Reader's Digest, just to name a few. 
So this rescue has a lot of emotion for me personally, and it's not something that I ever really talk about until now. And because of this, I want to give a special thank you to a lot of people that have been involved in my life right up until now that have allowed me to not only share this story with everybody else, but allow the platform for others to share their story so we can learn and get all the emotions that come from what we do. So the first person I need to say thank you to is my lovely bride, Melissa. Thank you so much for the love and the support and not only allowing me to share my stories, but helping me build this platform so that everyone can share their stories. To my daughters and their love and support, thank you so much. You girls have made me an extremely proud dad. Thank you for that. Your love and your smiles and your personalities, it makes this world a better place. Well done, girls. I know you guys are going to do even more in the future, and I love it. I cannot wait to see what you bring. To my mom, my dad, thank you for raising me to be the person I am today. You did the best you could, and, and this is what you got. I hope I hope it's good for you guys. To my crew that day, thank you so much for everything that you did. I personally could not have done anything without you guys. Thank you. To Captain Shoemaker, thank you for being willing to share your story with me. It means more to me that you came on and was able to talk to me more than you could possibly imagine, and I appreciate that. And lastly, I'd like to thank Operation Restore Warrior. Not only has it impacted me and my life to give me healing and a restoration, I want to thank them for doing it for everybody, all men and women of all services around the world that love and support and a way to rebuild that that we may have lost in some aspect or another, whether it's in war, whether it's in rescue, just something that we've gone through. Thank you for helping us get restored and back to our fighting and warrior status. I appreciate that. So now with all that being said, up next, we've got the prequel to episode 100. I'm super pumped. It's everything that happened on the fishing vessel galaxy prior to the call of Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Now I do have to tell you, I did make a mistake in this episode and I'm gonna own it right now. I said 24 people was a radio call. That was inaccurate. The actual radio call from Comstate Kodiak to the helicopter was 26 people, two six people in the water. That is the call we got. So I made the mistake in this episode. I'm owning it. I'm letting you know now. So when you hear it, you're like, I thought it was 26. You're right. It was 26. My bad. My mistake. So up next, please welcome the last guy that jumped off the galaxy. And I got to pick up out of the water, Captain David Shoemaker. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. You still go by captain, right? Sure. Okay. However you want. All right. Let's do this. My wife's my wife's not here right now, so <laughs> it's captain. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, right on. All right, I like that. All right, okay. let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Rescue. I've got an amazing treat with me today. This is somebody that I uh, I had the pleasure of meeting in the Bering Sea, and his name is Mister Captain David Shoemaker, and he was the captain of the Galaxy. 
the ship that was caught fire and I just so happened had uh, I was on the crew that went out to help you guys. What's up, Captain? Well, you know, as amazing as that was, it started a great relationship and one that I'll never forget. And Jason, to this day, I think of you often, as do the crew members that were there that uh, had your guiding hand put them in the basket and send us up to that helicopter. That was a pretty amazing day. You know, you're giving me chills already, and we're only like 30 seconds into this. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's, it's a real deal, though. You know, I mean, the whole thing was when that day when that day happened, Jason, it was like there was no um, there wasn't going to be a good ending. Right. Uh, it uh-huh. was. Uh, and I think every one of us knew that um, as amazing as it was to see you guys come swinging in. Uh, and, and to see your performance and how you did what you did, uh, when, uh, my whole thing the whole time was I was asking God to, that he needed to be there and he sent you. So, <laughs> I mean, how much better can it be than that? Kind of a kind of a scary thought, you know. I tell you, you know, I actually say that a lot on here is, is the people in distress are praying for a miracle and they're going to get you. Make sure you can do the job. And that was told to me uh, when I graduated from Rescue Swimmer School. And it has sat with me for many years. And you saying it now is exactly what I talk about all the time. Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's an absolute truth. There's, uh, it's kind of, there's a twofold thing. Some things that I think about, you know, like way back when, when I was in Vietnam, you know, those who were, were devout atheists were the first ones to be praying when we were in a firefight. And when you're in trouble, isn't it amazing that you're looking for that miracle because you realize you're in trouble? Yeah. So uh, for those of us who have who've actually, who believe, I believe uh, I in well. the good Lord. And I just, kept, I just kept telling Jesus, you need to be here. You need to be here. And I was, uh, I was dealing with some pretty heavy doubt that, that he was going to be able to make it. And then, like I said, you guys showed up and I guess, you know, that was a, a, a great ending to a whole, very, very horrible day. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really rough day, which is one of the reasons why I've asked you to join me, because there's a lot of this story that um, I don't know. And I've done my due diligence. I've done my research. You know, I know what the Coast Guard, they did their after action uh, a few years afterwards and saying, here's here's the breakdown of how and why things happen. But you and I have never actually had the detailed conversation about that day um, on your end. So this is kind of exciting for me in one aspect of that. There's stuff I don't know, and I'm about to learn it. So, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting that um, there's always two sides to every story. And, and uh, one doesn't think about that when you're involved in a situation like this. It's only their side. It's their story. Yeah. Um, and we both, both you and I'm sure with myself, we remember vividly um, detailed, very, very detailed events from second by second. And, and those are things that in a, in, a, in a catastrophic situation that we were in, we would never, ever forget those things. Yeah. And yet I don't think about what you were thinking about. I'm only thinking about what I was thinking about. And what I was thinking about was we really they didn't stand a very good chance of, of making it out of there. Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about, you know, the 25 years um, that I was a captain and had never had a, an incident or a situation 
uh, anything like this. It was um, the, probably likely the farthest thing from my mind. You know, on that day, it was a Sunday and, and uh, routinely we go through 60,000 hooks a day. We, we had a 198 foot hook and line vessel. And as you recall, and um, we were doing cod, Pacific cod in the Bering Sea. And we had a crew of 26 people. And uh, standard operating a day, uh, we had gear in the water. It was probably blowing 50 knots out of the, out of the Northeast for a couple, two, three days. Yep. We had swells uh, and sea state was probably 15 and sometimes 25 footers because of the buildup. And yet it was not something that was uncommon for working in that kind of condition. And um, so I mean, it was like, it was just, it was totally off as far as uh, what could have happened and what did happen. It was the farthest thing from my mind. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, one doesn't think about having to, cons- you know, depend on somebody else saving their lives when we've been doing this for 25 years. I'd been doing it for 25 years and never really had uh, a, a need or, or even thought something like that possible. Well, I, I, I agree. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Again, we talk about this on this podcast quite a bit of, you know, your bad day is, is I'm waiting for it. You know, we're on call for your bad day. And that's a terrible thought process, but I get excited about it. I'm like, I get to go do my job now, you know, and you're having the worst day of your life. I'm like, oh, that's, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. And it, and it's, well, you know, you're, you chose to, for that occupation, right? You wanted to go out and, and jerk people out of the water and, and make sure that <laughs> everybody got home. And my job was to keep everybody on the boat. And, uh, yeah. and keep them from being in the water. And so we didn't need you, Jason, uh, until that day. Until that's, that day. <laughs> that's when that happened. So, yeah, it was, um, it was really, uh, uh, I think probably, I guess I'm 73 now. That's 20 years ago. That was 53 years old when that happened. And absolutely the farthest thing from my mind as far as the inevitability of ever anything like that taking place. But I do recall, I remember that it was like in slow motion when everything first started yep. with the events. And I remember we were steaming. We just, we just hauled up a set of gear. We, we hauled our sets were 11 miles long and, and uh, we have hooks, you know, on these ground lines that we put in the, on the bottom ocean floor. We have a spacing of 32 inches apart and 11 miles on the set. So you can imagine how many hooks that is, right? 11 and miles of line. Wow. Yeah, 11 miles. And we have three of those in the water. So we actually have 33 miles of gear at 11 mile increments and a hook 32 inches apart uh, on that 11 mile set. So oh we're, it's gosh. a mission, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a mission. And the, the vessel that we had, the Galaxy, was uh, an incredibly uh, sound and safe vessel. Um, it was, uh, one that was the pride of, uh, of a lot of the fleet. Uh, certainly there was a lot of people that had been waiting to get on the galaxy as far as crew members. Uh, and I remember, uh, Annie Weckback, uh, who was our, uh, NOAA observer had been on a waiting list for several weeks, actually a couple of months because she knew she wanted to be on the galaxy. So, Wow. That's the kind of reputation we had. The, the vessel was uh, was really a fishy, a fishy boat. 
Um, a fi- fishy boat? <laughs> it was a fishy boat. It was a the fishy boat. Members, yeah, the crew members made good money. And it, I don't care where that boat was, there was fish there. And, and uh, I, that's why I called it the fishy boat, because it was a successful <laughs> operation. So nice. we were moving. Uh, and I remember it was pretty, pretty nasty out. And um, we'd end up, we hauled up the, the last part of our set. We still had two sets in the water. And because of the weather, I had to travel about 11 miles up to the northwest uh, to start hauling another set. And uh, because the weather was coming out of the northeast at at 50 knots and and been fairly steady for several days, it was sloppy. And we were pretty much in the ditch uh, on the way back up, a beam to the weather. And uh, it was a nasty ride. And I remember before we took off, I, I told everybody to close all the hatches and make sure we buttoned up, made her watertight, closed the hauling doors, the setting doors, um, make sure we were as secure as we could be. And it was going to be a rough go uh, on the way back up. And I, I would take it easy. We'd make maybe eight, seven or eight knots, you know, maybe three quarter throttle on both mains. Now, and I'd like to ask you real quick, what, because yeah. this was that day. So what time was all that happening? Is that this like kind was, of mid-afternoon was, or early morning? Yeah, no, this was approximately about 1,400 hours, 1430, 2.30 okay. in the afternoon. Yep. Um, when we started our transit to go back up. And I knew it would take us with that speed and that distance with the <laughs> oncoming weather that we would end up having to run her about half to three-quarter throttle. So, um, and being a beam to the weather, then uh, we ended up, uh, taking it pretty hard on the starboard side and the starboard stern quarter. We had taken a wave halfway up, and this was right at about almost a shift change. We did a shift change. We worked 16 and eights on the boat, 16 hours on, eight hours off. And every shift change, at, like this one was at 1600 at four o'clock, and I knew we were getting ready for a shift change. And so I knew the cook would be down there cooking away, getting ready to have everybody have their meals and the oncoming crew would be eating breakfast, the offgoing crew would be having dinner. And so there was quite a process. So we got, it was pretty sloppy. And then we ended up taking a a wave on the starboard stern quarter, kind of like that uh, quarter stick of dynamite really slapped us hard. I biz kaboom. And I, Knew immediately the cook was cussing me out. And how, how did that go? How, how did that yeah, wave hit you? The, kaboom! Yeah, kaboom! <laughs> right? It rocked the boat a little bit. And um, so I was expecting a phone call because he'd call me upstairs and just start chewing me out because he's trying to prepare a meal for 26 people. But we were in the process of uh, finishing up our set. And usually I get a case count or a case report from the factory. So everybody was kind of congregating in the galley because we were close to a shift change. We were steaming. The guys were changing out of their wet clothes and getting some dry clothes. And the process foreman came up into the bridge up in a wheelhouse. And he said, uh, I've got my case count report. But he said, I have to tell you, uh, Skipper, he said, there's smoke down in the factory. And I'm looking at him and we're steaming. We're still making way. You know, we're still making seven, eight knots. And I was standing in front of the chart table with my back against, and I was looking out both sides or looking out the starboard side and off the port side. But more often or not, I was watching for any rogue waves off the starboard side. Yeah. And so 
he had indicated that there's uh, smoke in the, and I said, what do you mean there's smoke? What kind of, what are you talking about smoke? And in my mind, Jason, he had to come up from the factory level past the galley and up another flight of stairs and another, and to the staterooms and another set up into the bridge. So I knew my chief engineer and I knew that my um, first mate, Jerry Stevens, was they were going to be um, in the galley. They had their particular places where they ate every day and they always ate together, but he had to walk <laughs> past the galley to get up to the bridge. And if he had smoke, I was asking myself, why didn't he stop and tell the chief engineer or the first mate of the galley Yeah, that there was smoke in the factory? And he was the last one to come out of there because everybody else was now changing in their staterooms and what have you. So, he said, there's smoke. And I said, well, I said, Jose, what kind of smoke are we talking about? And he goes, he said, smoke, he, there's, there's smoke. And I said, smoke, he said, yeah, smoke. And he said, like that smoke behind you. And I turned around, I looked, Jason, at the back of the chart table, and I saw smoke corkscrewing out of the fiddly wall for the, for the stacks from the mains from down yeah. below. And then I look to the starboard side and I see smoke rolling out of the bulkhead just, just by the carpets on the edge on the starboard side. And I looked over the port side and I saw smoke rolling into the wheelhouse from down below. And I had thought that maybe it was the, maybe the battery banks or whatever underneath the bridge, there was a void there of a four foot section where maybe that's where the smoke was coming from. Because how could that smoke have made it up that high without anybody in the galley knowing about it right so these things were going through my mind and when i saw the smoke pouring into the bridge from both the starboard and port side and from behind the chart table and i looked at jose and i said get down there grab the chief engineer get the first mate and i sounded the general alarm for fire um knowing full well we needed to address this immediately because it was coming in quickly and it wasn't probably Jason, I don't think it had to have been more than, oh, maybe one to two minutes. And it was almost so dark inside the, the wheelhouse, you couldn't even see out the windows. Wow. And I had 40, I had 40 feet, you know, starboard port to starboard, 40 feet of windows in the front and on the sides. And I'm running back and forth and the smoke is just pouring into the wheelhouse. And I sound the general alarm, the fire alarm knowing that my first mate and the chief engineer and everybody's going to address whatever this problem is. And I'm not knowing this, the severity of it at this point. And as I locked it in, I re I remember thinking that there's still people that are in their staterooms and that because everybody's going to get as much sleep as they possibly can. And many, many times, you know, there are guys that, that the people will stay in their bunks and forego a meal or a shift change just to get that extra 10, 15 minutes of sleep. So I busted out of the wheelhouse and I ran back aft where we had several staterooms and I'm kicking doors open and I'm telling them, we got a fire on board, um, you know, get to your stations. We have a fire on board and I'm waking people up and they're trying to get out of their staterooms. And it's just like kind of the Keystone cops. I mean, everybody's running in all different directions and nobody really knows what's really going on. And there's right. no answer to what's going on other than this is serious. So I remember uh, waiting for information, and I remember that every 15 seconds seemed like it was an hour. 
And as I kicked everybody out of their staterooms, I went back into the wheelhouse. And I remember going into the wheelhouse and not being able to see daylight out of these windows, 40 feet of wow. windows. And I could not see daylight. So I was scrambling. Uh, at this point, I'm heading over to the radios. And then all of a sudden, we had the whole boat just rocked. I mean, it was just we had this massive explosion that... Uh, when it, it was, it was like you, you felt the concussion on your head and around your ears. Yeah. Um, Cause it was that intense. And as it rocked the whole boat, I felt the boat just heel over and rock really hard. And I'm going in my mind, I'm going, what is this? Now I'm trying, I'm starting to gag and choke because the smoke is heavy in, in the, on the bridge. And I'm looking for some air. And so I ran over to the starboard window next to the wheelhouse, the captain's chair. And I couldn't hardly see the hook on there. We had those big 18 inch uh, brass portholes, right? They're pretty heavy. And I couldn't see my dog locks on it because it was too dark. And with this explosion, the alarms were going off. The radios were hissing and buzzing. Um, everything was static. Uh, there was all this noise and there was, uh, everything was just like spitting and sputtering and, and the, the alarm was locked into position and then general alarms came on. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing people screaming man overboard. Holy and If you can imagine geez. when I'm hearing man overboard in my mind, we had just shut everything down. We just made this vessel watertight, closed the setting hatch, closed the hauling hatches. How in the world could we have a man overboard? That's just not possible. And we're steaming. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what do you mean man overboard? And so the people are going up the stairway in the back of the galley, all the way up to the back of the boat behind the wheelhouse. And they're pouring out on the top deck. They're wearing t-shirts and they're wearing cotton sweatpants, no boots because we have a no boot policy uh, on the boat in the galley. So, and the ambient air temperature is 28 degrees and it's blowing 50 knots, which means that you've got a wind set or a, wind, a, a chill factor of about six degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. And these guys are in t-shirts, cotton sweatpants, no boots, just uh, socks on their feet. And they're pouring up onto the back deck. And I went, there's a little a hatchway right behind the house, go up four or five little stairs and just a 24 or 30 inch hatch. And I opened that hatch and blew through the hatch and I got fresh air. And I remember it felt so good to get fresh air because I was gagging and coughing. And, um, and these guys were screaming, man, overboard. And I'm, I'm going, what are you talking about? And I ran to the stern. We're still making way. We're still chewing seven, eight knots. And I've got no communication with anybody down below. The wheelhouse, the sounds coming from the wheelhouse, the smoke. I remember looking up at that point when I opened that hatch door. I remember looking up and seeing this black plume of smoke following me out of the bridge on my hands and knees. And I'm looking at the guys on the back of the boat. There's probably maybe 50, 60 feet of that back deck area where we had an incinerator back there. And we had our buoys were all back there, A3s, A4s. We had hard can floats back there because we fished heavy current back on the, on, down on the, on the chain. 
Um, and uh, we'd our gear would go down every day, and we used hard can floats. So we'd get our gear back when the when the tides change. It it bring your gear back up. Then I ran to the stern, and to my amazement, I see Jerry Stevens, my first mate. I see Ryan Newhall, my deck boss, and I see Tori Denuccio, my assistant deck boss, 50 feet behind the boat in the prop wash. And I'm looking at them and I can see that both mains, we're still chewing, we're still, we're still churning. They're in the prop wash, no PFDs, no flotation. How did they get there? How did you guys end up getting blown out of the boat? What was the explosion that took place down below? What's happening? And everything was happening so fast that it was hard to keep up mentally with really what was what was taking place. Because no, yeah, just to be able to piece everything together at that moment, and it was impossible. I couldn't do it. It was impossible. So I remember screaming at the top of my lungs to the guys because everybody was standing there looking, but nobody was doing anything. And and I and I said, start grabbing these bags. Grab these hard cans. Throw, get these life rings, start throwing this stuff off the boat. You've got to get this stuff off the boat and you got to get it off there. Now, these guys need flotation. Even though the vessel at this point may not be the safest place for all of us, it would definitely be the safest place for the three guys in the water. My right. first mate, my deck boss and my assistant, Tori Duccio, they had to, we had to get him back on this boat. How are you going to do that? We're 34 feet off the water. The back of the galaxy was 34 feet off the water when we're at the dock. You got 15, 20, 25 foot seas rolling through. And there's times when the stern goes up in the air, you're looking at 40, 45 feet, you know, between the swells. And these guys look like ants down there. And at the same time, I kept thinking, I don't have any means of propulsion. What's going on? What's happening? And I get back up into the wheelhouse realizing I've still got propulsion, but I don't have any maneuverability. I can't, the job's not working. I don't have the autopilot. It's completely out. Everything's buzzers are going off, all this stuff. And then finally the main shut down and they just coughed and boop and boy, we were done. And now we're dead in the water. I don't know what this explosion was. The, the, everything's going helter-skelter. I don't know what my chief engineer is. I don't know the crew that didn't make it to the top deck Apparently, after the fact, they had the chief had several people down grabbing fire extinguishers and they were heading back to the um, to the engine room where the fire was suspected. And uh, so everything was kind of just a, a blind fury of events with no answers. And so there was it was hard to make a call on anything. But what I didn't realize was that the current was running north by northwest. And when we got, when we were shut down and inability to maneuver, and the winds out of the Northeast were pushing us because of free surface, wind surface, the winds were pushing us to the South by Southwest. So the current was literally bringing the guys back to the boat because the boat had turned sideways in the, in the ditch yep. and being blown to the Southwest. These guys are being pushed to the North by Northwest. So they're actually getting closer to the boat and we started throwing fenders and and bags down and buoys and stuff like that so they get a hold of them and then it took five guys on each line we had two we had tori on one a3 buoy with a tarred nylon line that went clear to the top 
We had another buoy down there that Ryan Newhall was on. And then we had the life ring where my first mate, Jerry Stevens, was in the life ring. We had five guys on each line trying to hoist these guys up behind the boat. And the flames behind the boat at this point were completely engulfing the back of the boat. And that epoxy paint that we've been using for 10 years on that boat was probably quarter inch thick. I mean, the boat was beautiful, but it had layer after layer of epoxy. Yeah. And it was just going up. I remember getting close to the edge and trying to look down and the flames were coming past my face with this, the, the force, this almost air force behind it. You could feel the air generated from it. And we're trying to get these guys back up. I ran back into the wheelhouse um, and I was get, heading for a radio because nobody knew where we were. Nobody knew that we were dealing with this. There had been no radio call. There was no EPIRB wasn't, the signal didn't go. We didn't manually activate the EPIRB. There was no radio calls that were made. Um, and all of a sudden this, this is really serious. I mean, this is in my mind, I'm going, this is really serious. I got to get these guys back on the boat. And then we got to deal with whatever it is we got to deal with on the boat. And no sooner I'm thinking what's next. And there was another explosion. Oh, and the next explosion that goes, uh, I remember seeing the aft door, uh, which was a, a watertight door on the port side of the vessel, which like when we go into town, we'd moor up, we'd tie up. You know, there was kind of a platform there. You could open that door into a cubby area. And then you could have a bollard in there and a cleat and you could throw lines to the dock and tie it off in there. That door was a steel, six steel dogs on it was blown completely off the hinges oh, with this explosion. Cow. And so what happened was that that explosion took out the windows in, in the galley. And when the windows in the galley went out, then all of a sudden another explosion and things were just happening too fast at this point. And I had no idea if my chief engineer was was dead, was uh, hurt or crew or anybody down below. The guys up on top deck were still trying to hoist up Tori and, and Ryan and Jerry. And I remember seeing uh, in the air with this 50 knot wind, I saw like particles of flaming, burning material. Um, like like mattresses and, and cabinetry and windows that were blown out. And all this stuff was on fire and paper. It just, it was like just going up. It's, it's, it was like, a, I, it's hard to explain it, but it was frame by frame visualization of everything was just impregnated in my mind. It's a, a scene that I'll never forget. And as far as up, as high as you could see was this billowing black cloud of smoke and these particles that were burning and floating in the air. And, and um, uh, I got back down and I was, had, I was fumbling around trying to find a radio inside the wheelhouse. And, and um, I got a hold of the radio and the mic and I started gagging, I started puking and I had this snot was coming out my nose and I'm trying to hail out a, a, a mayday. And at that, that time, the chief engineer burst into the bridge, into the wheelhouse, and he was wearing a Scott air pack, self-contained breathing apparatus. He yep. ripped it off his face and he said, I have to, 
to, I have to trigger the fixed CO2 system. I have to trigger the fixed CO2 system. And I remember I said, make sure, and I'm puking and I'm on my hands and knees on the floor, on the deck, make sure that nobody is in the space. That's the only thing I could think of. If you're gonna trigger a fixed CO2 system, make sure nobody's down there because yeah. they won't make it. You know, it just evacuates the oxygen and yeah, great, does great, smothers the fire, but make sure nobody's there. And, you know, I mean, I knew he knew that, but I didn't even think about that. And so he turned and he was gone. And I'm trying to do this mayday call and it was the lights that came in when he opened the door, the smoke ran out and I'm holding the radio cord, literally not even hooked to the radio. It burned off. The walls were all on fire. The radios were on fire. And I'm, and I'm trying to make this call. And I threw the radio, the mic down. And I, I'm just like, what's going on? I mean, it's nothing's going right. It, it's just like I'm struggling. I'm, I'm losing ground. I'm losing ground. I'm not in control of this. And I, it's, I, you know, I've got to get into control. I've got to somehow get control. And I ran up the stairs and out that little hatch again. And when I ran back there, you know, I could see the guys were hoisting and pulling and doing their thing. And one of them said, Jerry Slip, Jerry Slip, Jerry Slip. And I go, what? Jerry Slip. He said he, he was in the life and he slipped and he's back in the water. <clears throat> so I said, well, I said, keep throwing stuff. Just keep putting stuff over the side. And what, unbeknownst to me, Calvin Knipchuk, who was one of our native Alaska Native Americans, who you would never expect some of the people that did some of the things that they did, Jason, you would never expect that they would be capable of doing it. And he was a problem person with alcohol. Um, and yet he was the greatest guy in the world. He was a, he was a friend. If we can keep him sober, he was a good deckhand. He's down on the foredeck, out on the weather deck, suiting up in a survival suit, tying a line around his waist because he is our rescue swimmer. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, nobody gave him any instruction. He's down there, fought his way out on the deck from inside the house, got a survival suit, donned it, tied a line around his waist, and he now goes over the side of the boat heading for Jerry, who's now floating next to the boat, and he's trying to get to Jerry Stevens to save him. Wow. It's, you, you never in a hundred years would I have ever thought that I would see that. Uh, and not certainly not with Calvin. But I, I, the one thing that is so interesting to me is that you realize what you're capable of and what you're not capable of. And I remember at the edge when I saw the guys in the water I remember putting my hand on the rail and getting ready to just throw myself over the side from 34 feet up to get to Jerry or to get to Tori or to get to Ryan but knew full well that I'd be throwing myself to my death because yeah. there'd be no way to get back and yet I've got this boat and I've got this but that was that was this feeling that was racing through me I've got to get to them I've got to I've got to help I've got to get to them and yet, maybe the best thing for me to do at this point is keep everybody going and get back into the wheelhouse and get a radio call, you know, get, let somebody know what's going on. And I remember 
saying to myself through this entire day, I'm running, I'm racing, I'm going to and from. I remember I've got radios. I've got radios in my stateroom and they're right behind the bridge, right? My three stairs down in the bridge and that was my room. And I remember because we had been in Dutch Harbor five days earlier and we had refueled and we use handheld radios, VHFs, when we do our fueling and I had them on the charger. And I said, that's how I'm going to do it. And so I went back down into that wheelhouse. I remember Matt Taylor was standing with me on the back deck and he goes, Skip, Skip, what are you going to do? You can't go back in there. You can't go back in the wheelhouse. And the flames were coming out the windows and out of the hole that I had been. Now there was this wall of flame that was separating us from the bridge or the wheelhouse. And I didn't realize it at the time, but later um, the guys were telling me that every time I went back into the wheelhouse, I literally went through a, a wall of flames and became, they couldn't see me. So they had no idea if I was coming back or if I was going to make it or not. But I didn't realize that. I, it's something I didn't even think about. I didn't realize it. And Matt said, take my scarf, hold my scarf over your face when you go back in there. So I grabbed his scarf. It was a red uh, bandana. And I put it over my face. And I went and I got down inside. And I remember going through the, it was dark, and down the stairs and feeling the walls. And I remember all the heat uh, on the walls, the bulkheads, they were all steel. And they were just blister hot. And I got to my door and I kicked that door open. And Jason is probably the, the one thing that if I were to have nightmares, this would be in my nightmare every time. That when I kicked the door open, directly across from my stateroom was the head. And the shower curtain came up as it was just hanging, came up straight out, waving in front of me. And directly over top of that was this orange, reddish, yellowish ball of flame rolling across the ceiling, coming wow. right at me. And I had realized at that moment what the problem was because I just basically introduced oxygen into a confined space. And it, this was the onset of an, another explosion. And so I threw my hands up in front of my face and I tried to protect my head and the blast hit me. It seemed like this was maybe, you know, three or four seconds. It was like slow motion, but yeah. literally it had been like a half a second, maybe to a second. And it spun me around and it slammed me up against the steel bulkhead next to the door. And I was wearing a polyester vest with a t-shirt, cotton sweatpants and deck slippers. And I remember I was fused, literally fused to this red, this flaming red steel wall because of the intense heat, which bordered the fiddly yeah. and, the, and the stacks going down to the engine room. And I remember that my vest was on fire, my, my um, cotton sweatpants were on fire and I pulled away. And I remember my left arm and my stomach and my left thigh fused, literally just kind of melted into that wall. And I remember when I pulled away from it, there was this red meat kind of um, just, just seared the skin right off. Yeah. Everything. And I pulled away. I got to my hands and knees. I made it around the corner. I was heading back out again because everything was upside down in, the, in, the, in my stateroom. 
I crawled out that door and I had literally no idea what I looked like. But if you can imagine Sylvester the cat that just stuck <laughs> the fork into the outlet, that's what I looked like. You know, there, there's a good analogy. Thank you. <laughs> I remember, Jason, I remember I stood up. I was smoking. I mean, everything was just smoking. Yeah. And I pointed my finger at the crew and I said, we are going to survive this day. And I'm yelling at them. We're going to survive. We're going to make it. You listen to what I'm going to tell you. You pay attention to what I'm saying. We are going to make this day. We're going to make it. And, and um, they're looking at me like, you got to be kidding me. Because, I mean, I didn't know what I looked like. But they weren't convinced that we were going to make it. So I uh, knew there had to be, there just had to be something. And now it's the intensity of nobody knows what's going on. Nobody has a clue. Yeah. How do I let somebody know? How do, how do I, like, somebody's got to find out. And we're, you know, when we run our long line operations up there in the Bering Sea, we really, we're our own uh, enemy because we will block out a 20 mile grid and we'll claim it. Yeah. And if you look from Unimac Pass at the Horseshoe, right in Unimac Pass on a Dutch Harbor side, all the way up that 100 fathom edge, clear up past St. Matthews, all the way to the Russian border, there is a hook line boat on the 100 fathom edge is claimed 20 mile grids all the way up. And so I'm saying to myself, we've, we've set up our own demise. You know, there's yeah. no help. They're, they're 20 miles, they're two hours, anybody from below us or from, our, from above us. But nobody knows we're dealing with it. So I, I was standing on the back deck and I said, start cutting one fathom shots of line. And they're looking at me going like, what? I said, so I started screaming at them. I said, cut one fathom shots of line right now. Start cutting. So they got this, all this buoy line up there and they're fathoming it out. One fathom shots, they're cutting them. I'm running around and I'm tying clove hitch and a half on every individual on the back deck, right? Right around their waist. And then I'm taking and I'm tying in A3s, A4s, buoys, 18 inch hard cans. Every person had flotation that I'm tying them into. And the reason that I did it was because on all of our cans and on all of our hard floats and all of our buoys, we had radar reflective tape. Oh, nice. And it's getting, it's getting dark. Right. And I knew that with boats, sodiums, C-130s, whirly gigs, helicopters, you're looking. If there's reflective tape, maybe, I mean, they're going to be sprinkled across the top of the Bering Sea. Once we all end up in the drink, yeah. at least maybe some some of them will be uh, discovered and, and brought to safety. And so this was going through my mind because I, I'm, now I'm, I'm and at the same time through all of this, um, I'm really I'm begging Jesus. I, you know, I just I'm going, Jesus, you need to be here. You need to be here, Jesus. I can't. I can't do this. Lord, I can't do this. And I'm racing back and forth and I'm tying these bags off on these guys. And they're looking at me going like, what, what? And I said, Tori, I said, take three guys, get over there and try to salvage the, the port life raft. We had two 25 man DBC life rafts, two of them. And ample enough life rafts for the 26 crew. But the one on the, I mean, the vessel was, the flames were shooting up 
on now the entire back house, front, um, sides, back, stern. The flames were just like 30, 40 feet in the air, Jason. I mean, it was just oh, it was yeah. like a nightmare. It was, it was catastrophic on what was happening. Here we are, there's 16 or 17 of us trapped up there. We can't get out. Meanwhile, um, what I didn't realize when I was inside trying to get radios, Ryan Newhall, my, my deck boss, he had him halfway up. He flipped upside down on the line that they were toting him up to the top deck. It wrapped around his ankle and it went out, came back. He slammed into the back of the boat, knocked himself out and he's hanging there. And he, these guys are trying to lower him back down, hoping that he can maybe get into the setting hatch and there's flames coming out of the setting hatch. And somehow, I, I don't know how, I, I didn't see it. Somehow he came to, they lowered him, they, he got into the setting hatch, came through the interior of the boat, all the way back up to the top deck and collapsed in front of Annie Weckback, the observer. They did get Troy Denuccio all the way up. They got him on, he collapsed on the top deck. Exhaustion, yeah. stress, panic, fear. Um, I'm racing around, I'm spitting orders, I'm screaming, hollering, trying to figure out how I'm gonna get communication out. And Jerry Stevens is now floating on the right side of the vessel. I'm, I went back into the wheelhouse. Uh, I made it back in there again. And I remembered that I had search and rescue radios Velcroed to the ceiling. And I'm fumbling around nice. and I'm trying to, to find uh, these radios. I knew approximately where they were because I remembered I put them up. They'd been up there for like two or three years. And I grabbed one and I went over to that porthole window on the captain's side, the starboard side of the boat on the bridge. And I got that window open and I took the chain hook and I hooked it into that, that, that bronze 18 inch portal. And I lifted it up. And I remember my hands were burning because it was so hot and I didn't have gloves or nothing like that. And I'm, I remember I'm, I'm trying to get that hook into that little eyelet to hold it up there. My hands are burning up and I'm, this is not good. And I stuck my head through and I looked straight down and I see Jerry, he's alive. And I see Calvin is gotten, is gotten to him. And I'm screaming at Jerry, hang on. Hang on, partner. Hang on, but I'm hanging out the, the window. And at the same time, Jason, the flames are coming up from the outside of the boat, but the flames are coming from the inside of the bridge out that porthole window. And I remember smelling that burnt hair smell. Yeah. Uh, and I could feel the wind from the force of the heat uh, coming past my ears. And I'm keying that mic on that radio and I'm keying it, I'm keying it. And the yellow light's not coming on. It's not coming on. It's not coming on. And I dropped back in and I threw the radio down and I ran right into the bulkhead. I remember hitting it um, and I backed up and I kind of shook my head and I can't see real well. And I got my hands on the ceiling and I found the other radio. I had three of them. I found the other one. I got it. I went back over the window and I'm hanging out. I'm screaming, holding the radio. I'm screaming at Jerry down the water. Come on, you can hang on. You can make it, Jerry. You can hold on. You can make it. Calvin's with you. Calvin's with you. And I, and I went to key the mic. And I remember Jerry was, it was, um, he just looked up at me. 
And it was like he was, Jason, it was like he was looking right at me. And Calvin was struggling because the seas were kept slamming him into the side of the boat and Calvin would lose his grip and, and then grab him again, you know, when, they, when the wash went away and it pulled him back out maybe 15 feet from the side of the boat. And Jerry just looked up at me as if he was looking right at me. And I said, Jerry, I said, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the white foam came out of his mouth. And I remember holding that radio and I remember looking down at him. And I, and I just knew right then and there, because his eyes just kind of rolled back up and, and his eyes closed. And um, Calvin was still trying. Calvin was still, was still going, he was still trying. And I, at, that, at that moment, I knew that Jerry had, had passed, he, that he was gone. And it was just, uh, just this numb, this kind of a numbness that came, came over me. But I then all of a sudden realized that, that there's the, well, there's still a whole bunch of folks on this boat. And I pushed that mic and I'm, I'm going Mayday because the yellow light came on. I'm going Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. This is the fishing vessel galaxy. Uh, I gave my, my uh, I see uh, relative bearing because I'm, my GPSs and the Lorans and radars, nothing was working. I mean, it was, and the wheelhouse was engulfed in flames. I mean, it was, you could hear the, the wood crackling in the wheelhouse and they're snapping and popping. And, and I mean, it was a full blaze. I knew I had to get out of there. And I, but I wanted that radio call to go through. And, and you know, Jason, I'm telling you, I, you, I don't care what you want to call it. I call it divine intervention, but it was 35 miles to St. Paul. 35 miles over, yeah. over ground. And I remember I that remember, too. Yeah, I remember when I made that call, this guy comes back on that radio as if he's standing right next to me. Galaxy said, this is the Loran Tower on St. Paul Island. I'm going, oh my God, are you kidding me? I didn't say that, but I mean, you're just, I mean, just, I'm awestruck with, and he says, I got it. He, he said, I got it. I said, I've got one guy down. We've, we've got one guy down, multiple explosions. I said, we need help. We need help now. And he said, I'm contacting Coast Guard group. He said, we'll take, we got, we got you. You know, we'll take care of this. And I said, I can't. I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm over. I'm done. I'm out. And I remember I turned around to get out of there and I hit that same bulkhead because it was still pitch black in there. <laughs> and I dropped that radio. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but it's walk okay. into a wall and then walk I into know. it again. I mean, walked in, it was like a bull, right? I hit that thing like it's amazing. It was still standing. And I remember getting up that ladder and getting out and feeling so relieved that somebody knows, right? Yeah. Somebody knows where we are. Somebody knows that we're in trouble. And, and, and then all of a sudden, it was like reality hit. And it's getting late and it's starting to get dark. October, right? It's going to get dark quick. And I said, I don't think that we're going to have any relief. I don't think anybody's going to get to us in time. But I said, we're going to do everything we can do to myself. We're going to do everything we can do. I got these guys all clipped in. I remember turning around and I told them, I said, nobody goes. Nobody jumps. We're 34 feet, right? We've got yeah. the life raft. I could not get the life raft off the port side. It was engulfed. In, and if you've ever seen 
a, a life raft and a fiberglass case go up. I mean, it's it's white flame. It is so oh, yeah. hot. It's just so hot. They couldn't even get within 15 feet of it. All of our Jacob's ladders in the totes upstairs in the wheelhouse. The, the, I had nine survival suits in the wheelhouse in Iraq. They were burned up. The Jacob's ladders in the tote up behind the bridge on top of the house were burned up. The port raft was burned up. The only thing we've got left to our disposal is going to be the starboard raft. And that's on the wind side of the vessel. And I knew that, that you could look off the side of the boat and you could count the frames, Jason, in the side of the galaxy, the red hot, at the waterline. And every time a sea hit the side of that boat, this plume of steam would just go straight up in the air. And it was just the, the noises and the, yeah. the conditions. I mean, I didn't even think about being cold or numb or any. My hands were burned and, you know, from, from doing all different kinds of sort to lift that stupid porthole window and all this other stuff. And now I'm, I'm going, we need survival suits. We don't have any. So let's at least get this raft launched, the one that's on the starboard side. And I knew that once we put that over the starboard side, it's gonna not going to make it because that hull's red hot. But that's the only choice we had. I ran over there, got on one end, screamed at one of the guys, get on the other end of this thing. And I went to pick that thing up and it didn't budge, right? I no clue. 25 man DBC raft is 450 pounds. We didn't have a self launching Jeez system. Oh man. Yeah, that's so heavy. Under, I go to pick this thing up, right? I think my hemorrhoids are still on the back of my kneecap, right? <laughs> I, I, I gave it everything I had. And I, you know, I'm kind of a buff guy at 53 then, right? And I can, we can make this work. So. So I started screaming. I got three guys on each end. Three guys, three guys. Let's do this. Pick it up, pick it up. We had to take it up out of an 18-inch cradle. Then we had to walk it over to the side. And so these things that are coming at me, it's like, okay, here's the real deal. It just dawned on me, nobody prepares themselves when they put rafts up on top of their boat. If it's a 25-man raft, they put it up there with a crane because they have no intention of ever having to use it. So they don't think about the what if scenario. Yeah. And the what if scenario is, well, what if this happened? And what if that happened? And all of a sudden I'm dealing with a ton of what ifs, right? And still there's no sight. There's no sign of, of recovery from boats or Good Samaritan boats or anybody. Well, like you said, everybody's two hours away. They are. They are. And I, I know this, but I'm not telling the crew this. Yeah. I'm just telling them, I, I made the radio call. They know we're in trouble. They're coming, right? Try to bolster everybody up, if, if that's even remotely possible. Yeah. But every time I came back out of that wheelhouse, when I came back to that wall of flame, those people, those men, were looking at me, eyeballs the size of saucers. I mean, shocked, fear-stricken, stressed out panicked, frozen. Nobody could do anything. And I'm racing just back and forth. And, I, you know, I just I made the radio call. I felt a little bit good about it. But then I'm going like, they're not going to get here in time. We're going to be going down. Another explosion. Now, all of a sudden, the boat's kind of healing over to the port side just a bit. And I'm going like, we're taking on water. We're likely going to broach. We're probably going to go down. Um, still, nobody knows, you know, they're going to get here in time. 
I got everybody set up. I've told them now, nobody goes off of this boat till I tell you. Calvin is now still down in the water. He still got a hold of Jerry. Jerry's passed. The raft is now on the starboard side. We've got it tied off, but the current pushed it way forward. So there's no way we can bail off where it is. And yet Calvin needed to get to it because it's right in front of him on the starboard side. The chief engineer, Raul Vioma, he is out on the main deck, running on the main deck, looked, saw the raft. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. Can you make it to the raft? He runs down the deck, Jason, puts one hand on the railing, pole vaults over the side with no PFD, no survival suit, no nothing. And he hits the edge of that raft and he lands it. It's got to be a 15, 20 foot jump. He gets in there. He gets a hold of Calvin and he gets Calvin underneath the arms and pulls Calvin in. And now I know that I've got the chief that he's alive. It's the first I've seen him since he came in the wheelhouse and said, I've got to trigger the CO2, uh, of which he never did make it. He never, he was never able to trigger it. Um, later, I found out that we had a remote pull for the CO2 system in the engine room in the hallway. He made it all the way back down the stairs after getting my permission to trigger it. That was standard operating procedure yeah. that he had to have the authorization on it. And he goes to the wall where the remote pull is. And for some reason, he decides, no, I'm going to go into the cylinder room, which was two doors down the hallway and off to the side. He got there, opened up the cylinder room, reached in, pulled the first pin on a two-pin pull for the remote or for the CO2 system, and another explosion took out that wall where the remote pull was. And if wow. he'd been standing there, he wouldn't have made it. So you ask yourself, why? What this premonition of no? no, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this and change it. And all of a sudden something happens and you're going like, had he been there, he wouldn't have, he would have survived it. The intensity of all of this going sideways rapidly, um, knowing that Dre was gone, he really didn't have any idea about anybody else. Um, knew that 16 guys, 17 guys still on the back deck, um, knew full well that, um, that uh, there was just so much going on, yet we were so far from being safe. I mean, it was pretty much to the point where I knew that we weren't going to make it. Um, I was pretty much convinced at this point that none of us going to survive this day. And so as I was thinking about the radio call and what have you, and I told the guys, let's grab this life raft. We had Jerry in there. We had uh, Raul in there, the chief engineer. And and uh, Calvin, and we tried to bring it back in six you know, to eight guys pulling on this life raft, trying to pull it against the current down the back of the boat and get it tethered off behind the boat. It was amazing to me that we were even able to do it. It was like it was like like it was anchored, you know, just because of the water ballast pockets on the on the back of the bottom of the raft empty. And then yet with the angle that we were pulling it at, the current was pushing it to the northwest. We're being forced to the southwest. It's all these things were going through my mind. And I realized at that point, nobody is going to jump into the water. Nobody. 
because if they jumped into the water, they're gone. They're not going to make it. So I run back. So and for everybody that doesn't remember, the water out there is like 35 degrees. It's just above freezing. It is yeah. not warm. Yeah. Like, no. It's October it, in the middle of the Bering Sea in 20 it, foot waves. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, you think just simply think about core temperature at 98.6 and, and surface water temperature at 35 or whatever. Yeah, that's a 50 plus degree change in temperature on top of the fact the current was running so hard to the northwest. If these guys had jumped into the water, they'd been swept away. And I knew that I could sense it because I won, you know, dealing with current setting gear all the time. But then watching that raft and seeing the guys brought back to the boat when they initially were blown off the boat, knew that current was running hard. So I said, nobody jumps in the water. You jump dead square in the middle of that raft. Well, okay. I mean, let's just get everybody up at a, you know, a four-story building and tell them to leap <laughs> out the window on a, on a little target, you know, behind the boat that's going yeah. up and down 20 and 25 feet every time a big sea rolls by the back of the boat. So I said, you will go when I tell you to go. Nobody goes until I tell you to go. I'm going to get some more survival suits from the bottom, from the old one deck. So I run up to the front. Can I pause look- real quick for one second right here? Because yeah. this is kind of, all of this stuff is going on after your radio call. And I, I just, I got to throw in our perspective for one second, because for me, when our radio or so we had the aircraft not taken apart, but we were doing inspections on the aircraft at the time. We had already done a five-hour flight. Like you guys, we were in crew change. So our duty day was over and the next crew was coming on. And uh, Melissa Rivera and Kendall Guerin, our pilots, came running in the door and say, there's a fire on board uh, one of the vessels. We Get that helicopter back together. We as the off-going crew are going to take it. And we're like, okay. And it wasn't, it's always a hurry. So I, I don't want to make it sound like it was, but we're like, you know, we're not frantically putting the helicopter together. We're, you know, putting the helicopter back together as fast as possible to make sure it's ready to go. We get out. And I remember having the conversation with like Mike Simone, my hoist operator. I'm like, this is, this is probably a galley fire. We're going to take off in 20 minutes. We'll turn around and come back. This was like the mindset of us going out because the only detail we had was, there's a fire on board a vessel. That was it. Well, then we get up. Yeah. So this kind of gives you an idea as to what our conversation was in the back of the helicopter as we're flying out. So we're 20 minutes out on our way to you, last known position, right? At the point of like 20, 30 minutes, we get in contact with air station. And that's when they call back and said, yeah, the boat, they've lost communications. There's 24 people in the water. And I came back Oops. on the radio and I was like, did you say two, four, 24 people in the water? And they're like, that's affirmative. And we're like, oh, holy shit. And we've got an hour and a half to get to you. And that's, that's what's going through us in the back of the helicopter. All well, everything is going on with you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> when you think about, when you think about two sides of, of how, what's actually happening, that's why I said earlier there's always one side. You don't know the other side. Yeah. But the other side had no clue what we were going through. No. And yet when you heard 24 people, two, four, is that affirmative? Yes, it is. For you, that was, 
that was absolutely beyond reality. I mean, it was oh, like, yeah. are you kidding me? Right? Yeah. How yeah. am I going to hoist in this weather? Yeah. How am I going to hoist 24 people out of the water? And when I can only put six or seven people on the boat? Yeah. Where, where are we going to put them in the helicopter? Was, exactly. was my first thought. And so we're talking about getting rid of equipment and gear. And then the next thing that had come up was, okay, if we have to make a round trip to St. Paul and then come back, we're going to be out of crew time. So when we land, we're done. So now we have to get authorization to be able to go back. So we're, we're running through scenarios on the way to you guys. Yeah. It was, yeah. And, anyway. and, fuel. and you had a fuel issue too. Uh, yeah. Well, we, we were limited to five hours and it was going to take two hours to get to you guys. That leaves us, yeah. and it was at least another 45 minutes to St. Paul. So there's right. three hours of our fuel. So that means we have two hours on scene with you guys. So yeah, it was it was a lot of lot of calculating with us when uh, yeah on the way out. Well, so I'll tell you one thing. You know, when you think about it, I look back at it now, right? You are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I've seen a lot of beautiful things, right? <laughs> stop it! Place. Just stop yeah, it! No. <laughs> It was it was like if somebody said marriage, I'm I'm all in. Let's do this. This guy's come to save me. I'm 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 good. I'm good. Yeah, there you (laughs) go. I love you too, man. So what you know, really, when you think about it, um, at this point, I knew we had to get survival suits, and so I had to go to that wall of fire again. And I never realized. I, I keep saying that I didn't see it. I didn't really feel it or see it it was just there's so much adrenaline that was going on and the guys were telling me after the fact they were going like you just disappeared you'd run forward you'd disappear and i'm going really i said you couldn't see me and i like, no and so i got to the front and i'm screaming at we had two or three guys down on the old one deck every time and our exhaust fans and stuff were right in front of the house um, our intake and our exhaust fans were right there. And every time there was an explosion, Jason, the flames would come out of that exhaust vent and it would travel across the deck about, oh, maybe 30, 40 feet of just solid yellow flame, right? Every yeah. explosion. And the three guys on deck that were trying to get survival suits, they'd just scatter. And the flame would shoot out like a big giant dragon, you know, it was like spitting fire at them. And then they'd run back and they try to salvage what survival suits they could. And yet there were individual puddles of survival suits because the decks were red hot because the fire was now into the factory. And yeah. this, this, this molten plastic was just burning just everywhere. There was a survival suit that they were throwing out of the gear locker caught on fire immediately. So now they're trying to throw survival suits 25 feet from the old one deck up to the bridge where I'm hanging over the front of the railings to get survival suits for 17 people. We had 46 survival suits, I think, on board with 26 people. I knew we had enough. They're trying to throw them. They're throwing them up. They maybe go 10 feet, maybe go eight feet. And I'm screaming at them. The wind now is in my face. Um, I'm still burned up. I'm not feeling really good. I'm scared to death. All these things are going through my mind. These people are like zombies on the back of the boat staring at me. We've got Ryan laying there. Toilet is laying there. Jerry's still, unfortunately, at this time, he's still next to the boat. Calvin and, and, and Raul are in the raft in the back of the boat. The, the painter line from the raft tied off to the top rail in the back of the boat was like a piano wire. 
it was like every time the boat went up in the air, that, that line got, that nylon, half inch nylon line got so tight, it was just grease and water, just spraying out of it, just squirting out of it, right? Every time a sea went by, the guys are all standing there going, they're going like, we're not jumping, we can't jump. I said, you, you will jump and you'll do it when I tell you. I finally had to convince the guys, go forward, all the way up forward on the gear locker and get all the monkey fists out when we go to town and tie up, we use monkey fists to get our lines to the dock. Tie the monkey fists off to these survival suits and throw the monkey fists up here. So you can at least get that to me and then I'll pull the survival suits up to the top deck. So they tied off five survival suits in series on one monkey fist. And all of a sudden these monkey fists are coming up there like cannonballs, right? One's up, two's <laughs> up, three's up. And they're all catching on fire because it's tarred nylon. It's all ground oh line that we use, right? So the, yeah. the heat is so intense. Yeah, the monkey fists are coming up over the rails. I grabbed the first one and it's so hot. And I'm going like, why is this line so hot? And I'm looking at my hands and the tarred nylon all the way down is on fire. And it's like plastic. And I'm pulling these, I'm pulling these five survival suits. And they get down next to the boat and they get hung up in the condensers and stuff on the top deck. And I'm trying to squirt them off to the side and, and shuffle them around. And I get, I get them up and I finally get them on the deck. My hands are, are like blistered. My fingers had to have been like an inch and a half each around. I mean, the, 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 from the plastic burning. And, and I remember I threw the survival suits down and I grabbed one, I untied it, I, I picked the survival and I turned around like this and it wasn't George Karn, my cook, was like in my face. I mean, he was right there, right, right next to me. And he grabbed my, what was left of my vest and he pulled me right into his chest into his face and were, my noses are an inch apart and he's screaming, I can't swim. I can't swim. I can't swim, Captain. And I'm going like, what? What? I mean, I don't need this. Not right now. I mean, do I just John Wayne him? I mean, you know, I mean, or do I knock this guy out with it? What? And I just, something came over me and I reached up, Jason, I and I grabbed his shoulder and I squeezed right by his neck and I looked into his eyes and I just very softly said, this suit's for you, George. This is for you. you. This is yours. And I handed it to him. And Jason, he, he grabbed that survival suit like a teddy bear. And he walked back to the guys holding, hugging the survival suit. And as I'm watching this, I see 16 sets of eyeballs looking at me. And it dawns on me. They're going like, who's going to get the other four suits? And I went, oh, this is great, right? How do, you de how do you delegate that? So I grabbed the four suits, threw it back there into the, to their feet. And I said, you guys figure out who gets these. I'll get you some more. So they start, you know, who's going to get what? Yeah. I raced up to the front of the boat by the railing. I'm screaming down there, get me some more. The lines that were already draping off the front of the boat were already full blown, burned in half, burned up. Gone. More monkey fists are coming. And I reached over and I grabbed another burning line that 
I saw that if there was enough of it left, I could probably hoist it up. And we took another explosion and over the rail I go. I go over the rail, I go down, I land, I hit a four inch crossover pipe on deck. And that's when I broke my ribs. I broke three ribs from my sternum. And I remember laying there, knocked my shoes off. I was wearing deck slippers, knocked my shoes off my feet. And I hit like a sack of potatoes. I mean, just woo! And I hit and I'm going, oh, oh, no. And I'm trying to sit up. I'm trying to raise up and realizing that my hands were burned really bad and my arms and my stomach and my legs from when I was in the stateroom. And I'm just going like, oh, my God, my God. And I could hear, you could almost hear the like bacon in the frying pan. Those decks were just red hot, right? Yeah. And of course, we re- ignited, you know, my, my sweatpants and stuff like this. And I stood up and I turned and I was going to head back into the, I was going to head back inside. There was a doorway going back in from the front. Two guys got a hold of me, spun me around and said, no, 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 no. You got to come with us. Come with us. And I said, no, I've got to get to my crew. The crew's up on top. And I'm screaming at them. And they're saying, no, Captain, no, you can't. It's too late. So as I turn, the first thing I see is a 55-gallon drum of gasoline, right, tied up on the rail for our skiff. And I'm going, we got to get this gas off the boat because the decks were really hot, right, and the flames and the survival suits were all burning up. So we tipped the barrel over, and the two of us or three of us weren't strong enough to pick up this 55-gallon drum of gas, of fuel, and get it over the railing. So I said, grab two of those buoys, right? Two A3s, bring the A3s over here, tie them to the railing, roll this thing over to the center of the boat. When the boat goes to come back to the starboard side, when it's rolling, then roll the barrel as fast as you can. We'll hit those buoys and we'll launch it over top of the rail. And that's exactly what we did. And that barrel hit them buoys and it bumped and it was right over the rail and into the water. And I just looked at them and I said, now that's how you get rid of gasoline, right? And they're going like, you've got to be kidding me. And I'm going to myself, I'm going, well, I'm amazed that even worked, right? <laughs> now it's time to get into a survival suit. Yeah. Well, the one, the one they gave me was a small and I'm a big guy. And I remember trying to get into this thing. And of course, you couldn't zip it up. So I said, well, I said, at least I look like Superman, right? Because I remember I had that big V coming up like this and I was in this suit. (laughs) So we go, we go forward. Meanwhile, I'm without my crew. And I I just kept questioning. There was four or five of us on the front deck. Um, Still, there was no, nobody in sight. There was no boats. There was no planes. There was no whirly gigs. There's nothing. And I was like, quiet, you know, so much, so much more quiet down on the old one deck. I mean, I could actually hear the wind and stuff and the waves hitting the front of the boat. And as I was going forward, I was starting to realize just, you know, how my ribs were just like on fire and my hands were burned really bad. And we got all the way forward and I said, okay, I said, here's what's going to happen. There were four of us. It was Matt and there was, um, Don, Don and Matt, and then there was Mirak and myself. So there was, there was four of us, Matt, yeah, four of us up there. And we got all the way up to the bow. And um, I remember 
sitting down trying to blanket myself from the wind. I was by the forward mast up there, right, right in the very peak of the, of the bow. And Mirak was up there. It was just really quiet. And I was watching the, the uh, discharge of the, of the ammonia going through the relief valves on top of the boat through the stack. I got a blue flame and I couldn't see. I couldn't see the guys up there anymore and they didn't see me. So they obviously, later they said they thought that I had, I died going back into the, trying to get more suits because I was behind that wall of fire. And, and they didn't realize that I was okay. So they were on their own and they had to make their own decisions as far as getting into that raft. I know Raul was later had told me that he was screaming at the top of his lungs from the raft down below, but every time the boat healed and went up in the air, the raft gets sucked up underneath and yeah. you got these big props, you know, and it comes back down and squirts the raft back out. I mean, it's like babies in a can, you know, and so Raul was screaming at him, you know, come on, come on, you got to jump, you got to jump. And George Carn apparently was the first guy. He had the suit, right? He put that suit on and he crawled way up on the back mast for some reason. And, uh, and when he jumped, he, he landed about 10 feet from the raft. And I didn't know this until later after the fact, but I remember being up front and I'm, I'm looking out across the water and I'm just looking to see if boats or something. And I, it was literally at this point, Jason, where um, I was totally convinced. I mean, there was no question in my mind that, that our lives were over. We're just, it's done. And you know, it's, it's really an, an amazing thing when you think about when you actually get to a point and you realize that it's over and you're just waiting, the calm, just, just the calm, the, the kind of, because there's nothing you can do. And so it's kind of like you start reflecting and you start thinking about your family, you think about your children and you think about your life. And, and it was very quiet. Matt was up there and, and, and uh, all of a sudden I look out across the water on the starboard side and I see, I see this emergency suit and I see this hand kind of going back and forth like this. And I said, Mirak, I said, what? I said, there's somebody out there. There's somebody out there. And he goes, yeah, Skipper. He said, I see him. And he said, I see him. And Matt looks, he goes, He's one of our guys. He's one of our guys. He's like way out there, maybe two, 300 yards. I'm going, what's going on? They're not hitting the raft. They're not jumping on the raft. And, and I knew right then and there that they weren't jumping on the raft. I'm going, my God, I've got to, I've got to get up there. Somehow I've got to get up there. So I start to go and Matt and Mirak stopped me. I said, no, 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 you can't. You can't. Meanwhile, you look back at the wheelhouse from the front of the boat. And flames are coming out the windows, they're coming out the front, they're coming out the exhaust vents. There's still explosions that are going about every three to four minutes and just the whole boat rocks. Now you can see the, the flames that are underneath in the factories right below us on the next level down. You can actually see the decks, the steel decks kind of wrinkling because of the intense heat as yeah. it's moving forward. You actually yep. watch, see it as it's coming forward. Wow. And I'm watching this and, and it wasn't maybe, maybe 15 minutes later, I see two people that are out there. And, and you can't yell, you can't scream because they're too far. But I could visibly see there's two people. And I couldn't tell who they were or why they were. But there was two people floating by in the same direction that George went. And I'm going, my God, my God, what is going on? There's something that's not right. 
something's not right. And then the next thing I see after that, it's almost the same amount of time was a buoy that was floating by out there. It was an A3 or it was an A, probably an, LB, an LB1, I think, or an LB3. So Long, just for the record, I have no idea the different sizes of the buoys you're talking about. I just yeah. know some are bigger than others. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it wasn't as big as the big ones, but it was kind of midway. Okay, I so, like that. <laughs> yeah. So, and I see this buoy, and I, I go, Merak, and I go, Merak, I said, this, what's, what's that? He says, Captain, Merak was Polish. He was, he had broken English, and I just love the guy. He came on the boat. He's been with me for five years. He was a great assistant engineer, just a great person. He says, Captain, he says, I, I don't know. He looks like buoy to me. He looks like buoy. I said, it is a buoy. I said, what's going on? And I'm thinking about the buoys that I tied on everybody up there, right? So yeah. how did that happen? I mean, there's somebody at the other end of that thing. I don't, uh, you know, I mean, they're not making it. They're missing the raft. What's, what's going on? And as we sat there, it, you know, there was the occasional explosion and I knew the boat was starting to go down and I could feel it. It just felt like heavy on the one side. No interaction with the crew. I had no idea what was going on back there. And it seemed like maybe five minutes, 10 minutes. And um, all of a sudden, you know, skip, Dave, Dave. I'm hearing this. And I'm, I look down through the hose hole, the pipe up on the, on the bow. I look down through the hose hole and the raft is coming. I mean, it's moving, right? It's coming. We're going one way. The raft's going this way. And I looked over the edge and I see Raul. He's got the door partially opened on the raft he goes come on come on jump jump well don he he goes up he, he goes uh, up the four rails in the front and he dove out as hard as you could imagine like he was coming off the edge of a cliff to, to swan dive and that raft was moving so fast in that current that he barely got to the edge of that the bladder of that 25-man raft and he hit, and they grabbed him. They pulled him in, and that that raft was gone. Yeah. And I watched that raft, and um, you know, Merrick and I. I said, well, at least I didn't know how many guys were in the raft, but I knew that three or four of them didn't make it. The first one went by, and then the two people, and then the buoy, whatever that was all about. And I remember the watching that raft and just that little orange dot on that ocean with the seas and stuff like that. And visibility wasn't that great. Right. Um, and still no sign of, you know, relief or, or we were coming. nothing. Right. So then, um, uh, it was quiet. It was like, okay, it, this is it. It's just, now it's just quiet. And hear the wind. And Merrick was sitting there. We were kind of huddled together, and we were maybe a foot apart. And he had the he had crystal blue eyes with blonde hair. And I remember he looked at me with those really crispy blue eyes, and he says, "Captain." I said, "What, Merrick?" He said, "Are we going to die today?" I said, yes, Merrick. I said, we're going to die today. And he looked at me, Jason, and you could just 
see, he just kind of went into a, a, just kind of a solemn stare. And I just kind of looked down and I said, you know, I said, it's time to be praying because this is, this is pretty much the end. And so I was on my, I was on my knees and I remember my prayer and I said, you know, Lord, I said, I've disappointed you most of my life. And I said, I'm a sinner. And I said, I believe in you, Jesus. And I said, I, the only thing that I ask of you this day is that you would receive each and every one of us into your kingdom today. And that was my prayer. And Merrick was right there. He was just kind of looking at me. And Matt was our, Matt was our freezer rat. Matt was a character. He, he had dreadlocks, really long dreadlocks. And he was just a funny guy. I mean, he was like, he definitely danced to a different tune. I mean, his drummer was nobody <laughs> like nobody else's. And he was, look, he was leaning up against the rail. And he looked down at me and he goes, so he says, Skip, he said, you think that's really going to help? And I said, you know, Matt, I said, I don't know if it is or not. But I said, it sure can't hurt. Not at this point. And he just kind of went, yeah. Yeah. Got quiet again. And uh, we just kind of like sitting there, just kind of like waiting. And I said, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. I said, we're going to take these big buoys. We had big buoys up on the bow. And I said, let's take three or four of them and let's lash them together and let's make arm loops. It was um, five sixteenths nylon line or five sixteenths poly. And I said, uh, I said, let's go ahead and, and make big loops so we can get them over our shoulders. And I said, when we go off the front, when we broach and, and we go down, then we're going to raft up and we're going to put these over our shoulders. We'll go together. We'll all go, the four of us, we'll all go off the side, the three of us, Mirak and Matt and myself. And uh, I said, at least we'll have a bigger target. We got greater reflective tape on them. And I said, hopefully we'll have conversation and we'll be close together and we'll, we'll raft together and we'll just hope for the best. So we put that all together and had it all set up and then we just kind of waited and um, been just a little bit since I had the prayer and then Mirak jumped up off the deck and he goes, captain, captain. He said, I see lights. He said, they're coming captain. They're coming. And I remember looking off in the distance and we saw two sets of light sodiums that were heading in our direction. And I just went, my God. Yeah, that, that he, the prayer works. And I, look, I looked up at Matt and Matt looked at me kind of like, whoa. So I have a sneaking suspicion that if Matt was truly an agnostic or an atheist, he had a whole lot to think about that day because those boats were coming, Jason, they, they were coming. And it, it, it didn't seem like it was all that long, maybe 45 minutes or whatever. But the fact that you could see the lights and, and knew that they, they heard us, you know, and that, and at the same time, I'm sitting there and I'm going, my God, my God, what an awesome God, you know, to get to this point in your life. And, and really put one out there going, I need, you know, you need to be here with us. And then to see how it developed and how it happened. And the only thing I could think about, Jason, was everything is always in God's time. You know, it's his time, not our time. It's his time. And he, 
he opted to step up and uh, and and surface. Uh, um, the boats came in. I'm waving the boat off. Right, I think it was the Glacier Bay, and I'm waving them off. I, we have no communication. I, I don't know that I didn't know that they were in touch with you guys. Yeah, um, I had no clue. Yeah, the like, Glacier Bay, the Clipper, uh, and then there was there was a third one on scene as well that came in, and we were doing pond the blue, ponds. The blue Pacific, yeah, Blue Pacific, blue Pacific. That's right. Clipper Express, I think. Yeah, or Clipper, yeah, Clipper Express, and then the Glacier Bay. Right, and so we were. Okay, ready? Back to us. This is this is sure. kind of funny. Is we're in touch with the vessels. All right. We're about an hour, maybe 45 minutes from being on scene at this point in time. Again, we only have a last known location. We don't have an updated position, no radios. Sure. We're in touch with the vessels, and we hear again, we're about 45 minutes out that um the other Good Samaritan vessels are arriving on scene. They have visual. Uh, the Gulf is, or the the vessel is engulfed in flames, and smoke is billowing across the water. And we, in the aircraft, are like, "Holy cow! They're gonna get there first. They're gonna take our SAR case. They're gonna no. see the guys before we get there, and we're not gonna be able to do anything." So we're like, "Like, hurry up! Can we get a tailwind or something? Can we get there faster?" And it, like, all of a sudden, it was they're gonna they're gonna take all the the fun out of this for us, and <laughs> and we're sure. still like. Like I said, maybe 45 minutes away. And uh, as we're getting closer and closer and closer, we're still in touch. And they're saying, okay, we've got people, we've got visual, they're getting closer. And, and we're all coming into the scene about the same time. And yeah, that's so there's that conversation in the helicopter, like, come on, we want to get there yeah. first. <laughs> yeah. So, but you didn't realize there was people that needed to be, you had to, you had to convince two guys later to, I realized there was two guys that couldn't jump Yeah. on the back of the boat because right. Jose Rodas was their cousin and he didn't want to jump. So he ties a line around his waist. This I'm already down on the main deck and wants to rappel down the back of a red hot hull on the boat with no boots on. Right. Because he's afraid to jump and yeah. nobody's got a knife on the top deck. Right. And he gets halfway down and he flips upside down and he ties a cinch knot around his waist under his rib cage. And he was about a 240 pound guy. And so he suffocates hanging in between the top rail and the 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 um, life raft. And the two guys that are still back up on on top are his cousins. And so there's no way they can lift him up and they don't have a knife. And so the line literally burned through that tarred nylon, burned through the rail that he tied off on. It was that hot. And of course, he'd already been suffocated and, and passed. And he went into the water and that was the buoy that we saw floating by. It was out there, the fourth wow. buoy. That came. Okay. So that, that was what that was. And then, I remember, I think, once we got up on the, in the chopper that you had circled back around, spotted it, or somebody spotted it, or somebody had it, and we had to pick him up. We had to pick up Jose Rodas and bring him up into the, into the chopper with us. Yeah, that was um, – so we actually got him off another vessel because they were, you did. They were doing – yeah, that's yeah. – yeah, but well, that's too far. That's too far in the story. We'll come to that one. <laughs> okay, okay. So anyways, what happens now is the boats are starting to come in 
And then, uh, and I'm seeing the boats and they're coming and the glacier bay's coming in and I'm trying to wave off the glacier bay. I don't know how they, I didn't think they had communication with anybody. And Mirak is looking at me and I'm waving them off. I'm going, no, 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 don't come here. Don't come here. And I'm waving them off and I'm pointing in the direction where the, where the, the uh, life raft had drifted off into the Lala land. Yeah. And I saw the vessel turn and it like he was taking my instruction. And I'm just so pleased with myself because he actually, you know, figured it out, not knowing that he had conversation going with you guys. Yeah. And, um, Mirak kept saying to me, what are you doing, Captain? What are you doing? What are you doing? I said, no, Mirak, the raft. They got to get the raft. They got to get over there and get the guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he says. So then, really, the, 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 when they started circling us, I think it was the Blue Pacific. Um, somebody was taking a film off the Blue Pacific, and Glacier yeah. Bay had already done this thing. They were heading out to get the raft. Vaguely, I saw an orange or kind of a reddish tinge on the side of the glacier bay when they were lifting up the life raft. But I think they had picked up another empty life raft because during this same time, the C-130 came over. Yes. You guys were on scene. You guys come screaming in. And I was amazed watching the operation of the helicopter and watching, you know, not knowing exactly how it was going to go, but knew that you, you, every time you guys came up over top of the rigging and stuff on the on the galaxy, you had to back off really quick because of explosions. I mean, the yeah. things were the things were getting pretty intense. And I'm going like, well, now what's going to happen? And I didn't know at this point there were still two guys on the back of the boat up on top. I thought they were everybody was in the raft. Three. There were three on was the back. Three yeah. So this is where it was kind of cool. Again, from our perspective, as we come up on scene, cabin door comes open and we slow down to about 50 knots, give or take. And we're just, it was like a, a we wanted to cruise over the vessel. We see the three guys on the stern and then we see you guys on the bow. And then we roll past, we flew right over the life raft. We wave at everybody in the life raft, let them know we, uh, let them know we knew they were there. Um, there were two or three people in the water that we actually, I personally didn't see. I, I don't remember if they did as well, uh, the rest of my crew, but the conversation in the back of the helicopter was, we need to get the people that are on the vessel off now. And that was our conversation in the aircraft. So we came over, flew over the top of the ship, over the raft, to 180, came back to you guys. And it was like, all right, let's start with the guys in the back of the ship because that's what looked like was burning the worst. And sure enough, it was. <laughs> how, how did, I, never, I didn't see how it happened. How did you convince those three people to come off the back of that boat without PFDs, without flotation, to yeah. go into the water <laughs> knowing that you were going to be there? How did they know that? So... Um, we so at first when the helicopter came over the top of the ship we were trying to hoist right to we were going to get him right off the top and not get him in the water and that's when one of the explosions happened and and i mentioned it a couple of times like it looked like a roman candle it just when the explosion happened it burned 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 and then faded away and i was like abort break right break right and get away from the ship and that's when Melissa said get in the water as I was going down, um, we were in kind of earshot and all I kept yelling is one at a time. And I'm pointing at them one at a time, jump to me, jump one at a time. And, and they're just like, okay. 
I get to the water, I disconnect and I swim as close as I can. I'm like, come on, jump, just jump to me. And that's one guy hit, grabbed him. And then we went from there. So, you know, I was always under the impression that when I watched the film, some of the film from the other boat when they were taking it, that it was like you got down to eye level with them. And I knew you were having to communicate with them somehow. And they were Hispanic and they, they had broken English and they, you know, they were scared spitless, right? <laughs> I mean, they were scared spitless. All of us were scared spitless. But how you were able to communicate with them, I at one point thought, you watch me, you watch me, I could do this, you win, and then they win. But whatever it was you did was successful because you got them all. Yeah. They all did it. They all got in the water. And at, meanwhile, when the Blue Pacific comes around, I'm on the front of the boat and I'm saying to Matt, I'm putting you in the water and I want you to swim over to the Blue Pacific and tell them where the raft is. Little did I know that there was all this communication going on. And so I said, now you go in my command, Matt. He says, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so he bails off the front. And apparently you guys in the, in the whirly gig were going like, what is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> yeah, so we're like, like, man, oh, we actually called it in the aircraft, man overboard, man overboard. And it was, he's in a survival suit. He's getting away from the vessel. Nope. Melissa gets on the radio. Hey, uh, we got a guy that jumped off. Somebody go get him. Roger that. Yep. Coast Guard, we're on our way. And that's when right. the boat came in to go get him. <laughs> yeah. So here I was, you know, old Dave, Captain Dave Hero, right? I'm going to coordinate this whole thing from the bow. Yeah, no. Gonna, You're, out. Matt, You're out. You're yeah, out. Matt, you get off of here. You go over there and tell the Blue Pacific that the raft is over there somewhere. Got to get them over uh, there. Plus, I've got people in the water. I got two people in the water that I knew of. Yeah. And so they had to start looking, right? So then it gets to the point where, okay, you get the guys off the back of the boat and now life is wonderful because I know that, you know, we're going to see dry land somewhere when yeah. I didn't know, but coming <laughs> and prayers were answered. And I said, okay, Mirak says, no, captain. He says, I want you to go next. I said, no, Mirak. I said, you're going to go. You just get ready. Oh no, captain. My captain, my captain goes first. No, Mirak, you're going. Oh, okay, okay. So I get him up there. You swim in. I was amazed, I think, at this the speed at which you could move through the water in sea conditions like that. It, that's all. It, it, it really didn't. It wasn't that fast. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. It was. I know it's that fast. So when I put Mirak in, I'm now watching, right? So Because I got to figure out how it's my turns next. But when Melissa and Kendall came over and they dropped their nose down and they were looking at us on the bow, yeah. I don't know what was going through my mind, but I was totally convinced that both of them were smiling <laughs> and that both of them were going like, you're going to be OK. Right. And after later, after I talked to Melissa and Kendall, the, the pilot, the co-pilot said, no, we were not smiling. <laughs> and no, we didn't say it's going to be OK. <laughs> and I said, well, that's how I my perception was. And I felt really warm and fuzzy, you know, <laughs> that everything was going to happen. So. Once I saw you pick up, um, once I saw you pick up Mirac, um, that was my turn. Yep. And I remember when I went off the front up there, oh man, oh man, I knew then when I hit the water that my ribs were definitely, I mean, they were definitely broken because it hurt, boy. I mean, yeah. it, but who cares, right? So now I'm going like, okay, this is everything that I've always heard about, everything that I've seen on TV. 
Here this guy comes up from behind me, drapes one arm around me, lean back, relax. You're going to be okay, buddy. You're going to be okay. And I'm going like, God bless you, my man. And we just rocket through the water. And the only time that I really realized how difficult it is to get into the basket, right? Because yep. it ain't a warm and fuzzy situation, right? Yep. I mean, that basket, when it started to go up, man, I mean, it slapped me on the backside. <laughs> and we're starting to head up and I'm going, oh, my goodness, here we go. And yet I was holding on to the crossbar and I was in the basket. And I just kind of remember that all of a sudden it was like out of an out of body experience yeah. where I see the horizon. I see the landscape of the ocean, the boats, the helicopters over top. Everything goes silent. It was like kind of a just a numbness. And I remember looking at the galaxy, knowing that I'm going up in, and that everything's going to be okay and that everybody should be okay. And I just remember saying, God, my God, thank you as, as we're going up. And then we get inside that chopper. And I, for one second, felt that this guy was going to dump me out early and I was going to miss the floor of the chopper going in because of the space between pulling the cage in. Yeah. And I'm looking, come blow me at this space. <laughs> going like, no, 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 don't do this. <laughs> we get in there and it was, I think like the realization at that point was we're safe and we've, we've been rescued. These guys have done a miraculous job not knowing who they were or, you know, like Melissa and yourself and, and your crew chief and, and these people. Um, but I remember, man, my ribs were hurting really bad. And I remember my hands were like just on fire. And I remember asking you, I said, have you got anything for my hands? And you, you actually took and cut the gloves off my survival suit. Yeah. And you took this bag out, whatever that bag was, Jason. My EMT put, bag. <laughs> you put that on my hands and, and I'm holding and I'm, and I'm going, oh, my gosh. This was like wonderful, whatever it was. But my hands were really burnt bad. I mean, they were burnt. Yeah. yeah. And, and yet, you know, I'm going, this whole thing was, it just seemed, it just seemed um, out of reality that it happened, like the two and a half hours, it seemed like it was forever. I think from when it first started, when we actually got into St. Paul. And when the chopper got us into St. Paul and got us into the clinic and stuff and and then I never saw you guys again. It was like you off on another mission or somewhere else saving people. But um, so it kind of interesting. Let me let me back up just a little bit because I remember specifically looking at you uh, just about as you were jump off the ship, and I knew you were the last guy. Um, I didn't know you were the captain at the time, uh, but it was like I, I remember signaling to you, jump jump and i remember grabbing you i remember telling you i got you buddy uh you're gonna be okay and i there's a couple of things that ran through my head the first one i did hear you say ouch when i squeezed now in training we we're always taught to grab and keep hold of your your survivors so they don't turn they don't do stuff and when you said ouch i was like oh 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 he's hurt and okay he's not, he's not gonna try to do anything to hurt me so yeah, it, was a, it was a relax but i also remember the vessel pitching and rolling so much that the anchor was right there. And I did not want to get hit in the anchor. And it was everything I could do. I like just to get, 
kick up the wave, up the wave, up the wave. And then as soon as we hit the crest of the wave and we're going back down the, that other side, I was, there was a relief over me that was like, okay, we're good. Um, I do remember getting into the helicopter. I remember you saying, Hey, do you got anything for my hands? I'm like, yeah, I do. And we had a, a burn gel uh, gauze pad. And I was like, Hey, let me put this on. And I'm looking at yeah. everybody else. Is everybody else. Okay. They're, they're looking at me like, I think so. Uh, yeah. 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 I think I'm good. Um, right, but then right. it, it, we had one more guy. So you were talking about this. One of the vessels had, had called up to us, radioed up and said, Hey, we're doing CPR. And one of the guys that every time like he's breathing, he'll get a, he'll start to breathe and then it'll start to fade away. And we knew that we were the last chance to get him to some sort of facility to, to work on him. And um, I remember getting him into the aircraft and dumping him out of the basket and performing CPR on, on him. And one of the things that stands out to me more than anything else, uh, which is it's actually interesting that I'm talking to you right now about it, is that I was doing CPR. And at one point I'm looking around at you guys, watching me do chest compressions on your friend. You know, let me share with you the realism of life and death is when you are obviously involved or engaged in trying to save somebody's life. I think one of the most impressive things in my life at that point was to see somebody like yourself. And I don't know how, how far of a, how long it took us to get to St. Paul it had to be 40, like, 45. Yeah. 45 minutes. Well, Jason, you guys never stopped doing CPR the entire flight for 40 to 45 minutes. You did CPR and continuously on and on and on. And amazingly, once we got to the clinic, then the next group that came in, they were, they relieved you and they were doing CPR uh, with Jose right yeah. next to me in the clinic. I'm laying in the clinic. They're cutting my clothes off. They wouldn't stop. And they, they, no conversation between anybody. And I, you know, just that dedication of your whole purpose, your career uh, in search and rescue and putting everything on the line and not giving up meant more to me, I think, in my life at that point than anything that I can remember. It was amazing. And, and that when I really realized what search and rescue means for Coast Guard, for you guys, is it was a totally different um, mindset than what I'd had before, not having been part of it or realizing it or seeing it. And I, I just have to tell you that, um, you know, what a, what an, I just, you guys are like, in my mind, you're like icon, you're legends in my mind, in my life. And <laughs> for sure. And I don't want to say that lightly. I, I'm here because of you. I'm, I'm here with my family because of you and Melissa and Kendall and, and your efforts, right? I am. When I was, when I realized the humility uh, the integrity and the humility of the Coast Guard and people like yourself is when we were in San Francisco. It was an award ceremony for you and your crew. And I'll never, ever forget this. And my wife and I are sitting out in the middle of about 3,000 people in this big hall in San Francisco. 
And it was your day. It was it was the whole crew and the, and the award ceremony for what you guys did on this miraculous recovery and this rescue. And you guys called me out in the audience to stand a standing ovation. And it was your ceremony and for the awards for you guys. I, I was just like taken back. I, you know, I said, there's so much humility here. There's, there's so much integrity with the Coast Guard. And from that day on, from that day forward, all the events that happened, Jason, I've never forgotten it. And there, I teach class at, at North Pacific Vessels Owners Association. I do drill classes. I've been teaching classes ever since the galaxy for the past 20 years. And I talk about the Coast Guard um, as far as my heroes, and they should all respect everything that you guys do. And I really lay it on them heavy, boy, because I have a whole different attitude toward what you guys do. But on, an, on a lighter note, um, because of you, many of us are alive today. And I appreciate it. And I thank you for that. I thank you too. I, you know, like everything you guys do, training and set up and Thanks for yeah. giving me a job. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for taking it. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, right. it, one of the other things that you mentioned is like, we know we didn't see each other. You went to the clinic. And so we, uh, our crew jumped on a C-130. We had to go back to Kodiak Island. So we left St. Paul. We went back to Kodiak. We did a full debrief. While we were doing the debrief, um, we were asking to go back to St. Paul because we knew there were people that were still in the water. And we knew, like, we knew there was the, the case was the mission was not over. And then sure. uh, one of them from the uh, Clipper Express off the top of my head, one of their crew members actually got washed overboard and we were out searching for him. So we went back right. out and we were doing search patterns and burning fuel and time and searching and searching because we knew there were people still in the water. Um, yeah. And that's so the mission yeah. was not over for us. We, we were not done. And that was, right. you know, even though you and I didn't, we never got to see each other until San Francisco. Um, and actually, I yeah. remember meeting one or other two of your guys that was on the, on the vessel as well. And, and I remember saying to them, like, hey, have you gone back to the Barrier Seas? He's like, yeah, I've been up there twice. And I'm like, holy yeah. cow. Okay. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, it I, was, um, when the guy, when you guys went back out, it was uh, uh, Schmidt was his name, and he actually went out to tie down one of the rafts that the that the C one thirty dropped. Uh, it was they picked it up, and and he said, "I'm just going to run out real quick, and I'm going to lash it down because it started to break away, break loose." Yeah. And before the captain could tell him, "No, no, no, don't," because it was like blowing seventy five, and I think the sea condition, sea state was like thirty footers. Yeah, it was close big. to it. And um, it took well, he opened the door, stepped out on deck from what I understand, and the sea came over and swept him off the side. And that was it, you know, just it's just so unfortunate, you know. But at the same time, um, for you guys to do what you do, it was like I, I've had since I've had uh, I've had Melissa uh, here at my home um, with with her husband, and we had a barbecue here one day. Um, Love it. Yeah, it was, Love it. She was on her way up to Cody, uh, Kodiak, I think. Probably. Yeah, she Headed was going to Kodiak. There. And then Kendall, um, I, we, I was uh, speaking back at the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. 
And I had Melissa back there with me one time and I would tell my story and then she would tell her story. And her story was much different than my story because <laughs> it was two different stories. Like no, no, nothing different like what we're doing today. I had one perspective and you had your perspective of what was yeah. happening. And then Kendall did the same thing because I had Kendall come in when Melissa went to Kodiak and I brought her into the, one of the speaking engagements and she had her story. Um, but what a great combination, you know, having the rescuer and the rescuee in one facility talking about their stories. I mean, it makes for the, the real the realness of, of what actually happens. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really, really wonderful. It's really good. Uh, I appreciate you sharing it with us today. I enjoyed it all over again. Yeah, yeah. It so brings years. back some memories. Twenty years. Twenty years, 20 years this October. Yeah, right? October twentieth. Years. Yeah, I'm so glad you reached out, Jason. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I've, you know, you said it earlier. There, there's not much time that goes by that I don't think about you too. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> just just know you. that. Like it always got, goes through my head that whole that whole rescue. So I was an it was an amazing day, amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one more question before I let you go. It, actually, I might have two, but you said you do a lot of you're part of the grief council in Seattle, the Seattle Grief Council, and you talk a lot yeah. about this. What is it that you're telling everybody about this? Is it the like how what detail? Why do you talk about this? Um. I, I, I've been the grief counselor for the Seattle Fisherman's Memorial for the past eight years. And on that venue, I don't talk too much about Coast Guard or about rescue, search and rescue. But I've been a certified uh, drill conductor, instructor at NPFEOA, and I've been doing that now for maybe 20 years, 19 years, actually, as of January of this year. And I have uh, included the Coast Guard in multiple stories of, of different events that have taken place in the Bering Sea, because that's where I hung my hat for so many years, um, and pretty much brought these guys to the understanding of why you're there and, and how you really, really look at what you do. As far as your, the personal side of this mission is not like, you know, when, when we worried about the Coast Guard coming on board our boats and they're going to do a, a, you know, boat inspection and you hear the radio click, you know, and you're going like, they've been hanging out there for two miles, you know, on that cutter. And I know they're going to come over. There's going to be a boarding party. <laughs> so you tell the cook, you know, get down there and you start making donuts and cakes and we'll serve hot coffee. You know, it was like the Coast Guard had a bad rap because they were they were looking to the enforcement side of it. Right. They're going to find something wrong and really come to believe it, Why did it take a catastrophic event to me to bring me to the point of understanding that, boy, the Coast Guard, what a tremendous organization, because you truly believe in your fellow the peers in the maritime industry and you're there if they're in trouble to help them. So I take my classes and I pretty much my whole class is structured around the galaxy event of the things that can go wrong that will, the mistakes that you can make that you do. Um, and why is it we have to have a catastrophic event to learn the, from the mistakes that we've made, but at the same time, why not share those mistakes? And that's what I do. 
So I share the mistakes made on the galaxy from what I learned from it and mistakes that can be made. And I bring the Coast Guard in as far as they're there to ensure we are with our families when our season's over. And I really stress that a lot, uh, uh, a ton. And I hope that when they leave my class after eight hours, they have a different opinion. That's awesome. Because they know if they don't, they know I'll, I'll be nasty to deal with. That's how that works. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Is this your full-time job? Is this what you're doing full-time now? Or are you still fishing? Um, no, I'm not fishing. I, so I decided that actually my wife, um, after it was interesting that you bring that up that after uh, the incident, after I got out of the hospital at a Harborview in Seattle, that I was became the manager with the same company when I had 11 boats that I was managing. And the boats would call me at home off hours, right when I wasn't at the office. And I'd pace back and forth because they'd be asking me about, you know, the, the reefs and they'd be asking me about this hot spot or out at Kisco or Bull Deer Ridge or up at Amac Island. And what about St. Matthew's? And I'd, I'd be so into it because I'd done it for so many years that I knew the reefs. I knew the, the ebb, the best time for setting your gear and the, and the drift and all the stuff. And I'd be pacing back and forth on the phone in, in the kitchen. And one day, Brian Walker uh, called me on the phone. He was running the Liberator. And he said, Scooby-Doo, he called me Scooby-Doo. He said, Scooby-Doo, he says, I'm heading out to Bull Deer Ridge. I need to know this, this, and that, and the, and the tide set and stuff. And I'm into it and I'm talking to him. He said, okay, he says, I got it, I got it. And um, my wife was sitting at the kitchen table and I got off the phone and I was looking out the back window and she said, would you sit down, please? I said, sure. So I sat down, I looked at her. And she said, I've raised our kids um, for the past 25 years and I deserve to have you home. Nice. Ooh, ooh. How do you argue with that? She could see, she could see this, uh, this energy in fishing and the competition and the challenge. And um, I wanted to go back. I mean, I really wanted to go back. But I also realized that she was absolutely right, 100%. So I decided then to uh, put my efforts into um, teaching. Um, drill, staying within the Maritime Academies and, and teaching and actually Coast Guard as well with the auxiliary groups and those up and down the coast and, and uh, other peers, other fishermen, fisher people. And I've done that for so many years now. And I tell this story every time I do a drill class, eight hours, and I bounce back and forth with what can happen and the what if scenario. And then to pay it forward with the grief, uh, to become the grief counselor was because of the loss of life um, on the galaxy, you know, between Jose and George Karn and Jerry Stevens, that I wanted to pay that forward and give back to the industry what they gave to me. And if I could be of some, some consoling help to a spouse and to children who've lost their dad or their brother or their significant other, then I wanted to be right there with them. And uh, for eight years, I've done that. And That's awesome. it's a huge, a huge reward. It's just, it's just a huge reward to be able to sit with them and comfort them. And, and they know because the galaxy was such 
it was really a, a media event in the, on the West Coast with the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, so the, the reputation of the galaxy and then all of a sudden here's a grief counselor that was actually part of the galaxy. Um, you, yeah, you know, here's how I'm feeling and that that really helped. But I also went to um, I spent a couple of years and I got my certi- certifications in death and, and uh, counseling grief for yeah. I sat under a psychologist in uh, Colorado, Dr. Warfold. And um, I got my degree, I got my certification for death and grief. And so now I share that with these people, uh, with all of them. And uh, um, it's just, it's comforting to be able to help. Kind of like how you felt when you were going out to get 24 people out of the water. (laughs) Right? Yeah, it might have been a little more of an adrenaline rush for me, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're probably right. You're probably Uh. right. Oh yeah, man, for sure. Yeah. Dave, I cannot thank you enough for joining me and, and just sharing this stuff with us. The whole story uh, to live this again with you is just, I, I can't express the words, like the emotions yeah. that are connected with this story for me personally. Um, yeah. I don't talk about this very often. If I do, it's a very much briefer version. So, yeah. So thank you. Yeah. I appreciate having the opportunity, Jason. Thank you. Again, thank you. My wife thanks you. My children thank you. (laughs) The industry thanks you. My pleasure. You know, let me throw one more thing out there. Because when we were in San Francisco, I remember meeting your wife. And I remember her saying thank you. And next thing, she's crying and I'm crying. And I think you're looking at the two of us like, hey, suck it up. And I'm like, oh, it's just Yeah, right. Well, you know, I mean, in public, you have to be the captain, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. You got it. All right, Dave. I'm going to keep in touch with you um, one of these days. We're we're going to get together. We're going to get back. I hope so. Yeah. Let's make it happen for sure. I hope so. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. I love it. Absolutely. I'll see you soon. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com that's jason at t-h-e-r-e-a-l-r-e-s-q.com you can also check us out on our web pages therealrescue.com our facebook page and our instagram page at therealrescue again a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today always remember when that star alarm goes off those in distress are praying for a miracle they are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.